0: No one
1: as special as you.
0: Welcome to the Periscope, the podcast that explores the challenges of today and the opportunities of tomorrow. My name is Stephen Beer, co-chair of the Lewis Brisboy Entertainment Media and Sports Practice. My co-host is Jonathan Pink. He's co-chair of our practice group. In this episode, we speak with Stephanie Riggs, former Disney Imagineer and Refinery29 Vice Media Experiential Creative Director. Stephanie Riggs has bridged narrative immersive and interactive technology for over 25 years, leading groundbreaking projects across theater, theme park, film, VR, and AR. This has led the VR and AR Association to hail Stephanie as truly the Renaissance woman of the immersive era. Stephanie is currently the CEO of Odeon Theatrical, a platform and creative studio integrating AR with live performance. Stephanie's collaborations have pushed the boundaries of technology and story across media companies such as Instagram, Google, Netflix, and Amazon, as well as startups, nonprofits, and research in academic institutions including Yale's Blended Reality Lab, NYU's Future Reality Lab, and Carnegie Mellon's Entertainment Technology Center. Stephanie is passionate about inspiring diverse interdisciplinary teams, and she frequently mentors and speaks around the world, TEDx, South by Southwest, Media Tech Hub, and the BBC. She's a founding board member of the Fifth Wolf Forum, the World Experience Organization, and Women in Experience. Stephanie's acclaimed book, The End of Storytelling explores the convergence of her learnings, explains why traditional storytelling doesn't work in immersive environments, and presents a new paradigm for designing narratives in immersive technology. Stephanie is a Phi Beta Kappa graduate of Carnegie Mellon University's School of Drama in Directing and School of Computer Science in Human-Computer Interaction. Welcome, Stephanie.
1: Thank you, Stephen. Glad to be here.
0: What do you see are the challenges that traditional storytellers face when creating in interactive, immersive mediums?
1: That is a huge question that I absolutely love. (laughs) Um, I I come from a background of classical storytelling um, where we're very used to working in framed mediums with linear narratives. Um, And while I was studying that at Carnegie Mellon, I was simultaneously studying computer science, which is interactive, and um, and working in virtual reality, which is immersive. And it became very clear early on that classical storytelling is quite different from immersive and interactive. I mean, you have the narrative paradox, which is a, a pretty well-known conflict between the interactor's agency or their freedom of choice and ability to affect a narrative and an author's control over that narrative. And those kind of come head to head. Um, You'll have storytellers, a lot of times consultants that I'll work with, that want to just write a script and not take into account how the audience plays and interacts with that narrative. So it, it, it changes everything from how creators are conceptualizing the content to how audiences are interacting with the content to how the production needs to iterate in order to accommodate different types of audience interactions.
0: But you've been doing this for a while. I've seen you produce two traditional projects, one a documentary, the standbys, and one a narrative feature, sci-fi, Banshee chapter, and enjoyed them both for very different reasons. They're very different films. So tell us about the evolution from the traditional storytelling through film to where you are today, where you're exploring, the, uh, where you're pushing the boundaries of storytelling and incorporating technology to meet the audience where they are as opposed to the traditional setting where you have the audience in the seats and the film or the performance on the stage?
1: Yes. Um, You know, when I was working in VR back in the 90s, getting people to come from the classical narrative side over to the technology side was nearly impossible. And... Vice versa, although a lot of technologists are often have some kind of basis in theater, but I would find those two worlds being very disparate. And so, when I'm creating something like Banshee chapter, even though it's a even though it was a classical narrative script, we were working with stereoscopic film, right? Where we were actually filming with two cameras. We were pushing the limitations of those with low, with low lighting, and ultimately evolved that into what became the first feature film released in VR. So, even though I was looking at it and developing that classical narrative structure, I was still trying to find ways to integrate technology, trying to find ways that we could share stories in a different way. So I think with the advent of uh, consumer viable VR, suddenly you start to have more people engaging in the development of um, content on these new platforms. The challenge then becomes they come with such so much baggage honestly so much knowledge but ultimately that knowledge ends up working against them because they'll try and do something that has a structural narrative and not realize well the audience can be looking anywhere so if you've got something where you're used to working in a frame and you can position something so that you know the audience is going to see it that might not happen in an immersive setting um and i think right now we're very much in the teenage years of those two things coming together where they're kind of they're struggling they're 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 trying to, to one's trying to hand off to the other in ways that, that, that they don't know where exactly where it's going to happen and there is another generation that is going to come where it becomes much more symbiotic and fluid but for me personally i've slowly had one hand outreach to the technology, the other hand outreach in the complete opposite direction from the nar- to the narrative and have been slowly pulling them and pulling them and pulling them together. And with each step, you know, trying to take the fear from creators out of, um, well, what is this technology? I don't know how to code. You don't need to know how to code. Um, but, but the opportunities that they present, um, if you choose to, uh, to, to, Step into the challenge of bringing those together is phenomenal.
2: So I have a question. This is Jonathan and Hi. welcome Stephanie. Hi. So um, I come from a classical narrative background. film school before law school and worked as a writer for a while. Um, but my question is, if I understand what you're saying, the immersive is where the participant has some say in the outcome of the story. And correct me if I'm wrong on that, but I have a follow-up question, which is based on a description I just heard you give, couldn't the classical narrative structure and the immersive work simultaneously such that if we're in a VR situation and there's a story element that I as the audience needs to get Couldn't there be, say, two characters in that immersive setting and they're speaking and so I could either hear them or turn around and see them in my in my VR world?
1: So two different things. Immersive is generally, um, I, uh, people ask, what is immersive? Because immersive at, nowadays can be everything from you know walking into a projection mapping Van Gogh to wandering around, sleep no more, right? So immersive is, for me, a psychological state of engaging in content, right? So you can be immersed in a book, you can be immersed at Van Gogh, you can be immersed in theater, but interactivity, which is the audience's ability to interact with content, is slightly is slightly different, and I think that's where your your question is headed. Mm-hmm. Um, on the On the interactive side, there are different degrees of interactivity, right? And there's been a lot of research in this, and certainly if, for people that are looking to get into. Um, Interactive and immersive. At this stage, a lot of people will look and say, "Oh, it's new," and it's like, you know, there's literally decades of research that you can find about uh, that people have done with with studies and tests of of how people engage. But when with interactive, if you give the audience the agency, for example, for Sleep No More to wander around the space, right? In a classical sense, we don't know where the audience is at any po- given point in time. So what you see is a narrative that falls very flat, right? It's not, there's no story development. There's no you know, conflict and climax. You're not watching, um, you know, two people come together and, and battle and, and and discover secrets and, you know, all the things that we think of in classical narratives because we have no control over where the audience is at any point in time. You can certainly... Um, influence it. And this is something that the gaming industry has really become adept at. And I love working with gamers um, because they understand that, you know, if, if you make every place in the room dark, except one light, people are going to walk towards that light. Right. Um, And you can have these, these little um, uh, cognitive helpers that help you move people through a a space psychologically. But ultimately what it comes down to, um, especially in these new mediums, is um, cognitive load, right? Which is a, it's a principle of HCI, which I don't think that many narrative uh, designers think of other, unless they're in gaming, which is that if I'm navigating a space, I'm looking over whether I'm going to trip over something or am I missing something? Like my brain is not, doesn't, has already has so much cognitive load that, sitting back and absorbing and emotionally engaging in a meaningful story is nearly impossible.
2: That's really interesting. Um, I'm probably jumping far ahead. But the other thing that comes to mind is, while a motion picture or a television show is hugely scalable, right? I mean, I can write something that can be seen by 50 million people. How scalable is immersive um, I don't know what to call it uh, experience. experience yeah yeah
1: so I think that we saw a lot of exploration into scalability during the pandemic you had classical theaters that were shut down venues where they couldn't um, hold shows and uh, organizations started to look online and realize oh my gosh you know maybe more than my 99 seat theater I can now reach millions of people with my broadcast but you know that that medium is again different and they weren't quite set up to succeed in um, in that medium, you know, in the streaming medium as a as a live component, but I you know I think that that. That little ember has, you know, started to, has started to glow and, you know, you're seeing more and more productions start to look into augmenting the live performance with streaming versions. I know the Baryshnikov Theater in New York did The Orchard and they had the live performance in the seat and at the same time, um, there's a company called Heaven You and Agile Lens that uh, created a an immersive experience that people could go into on their computers at home and and then that put them into the live experience where there were cameras that were, you know, getting closer to the action and, and sharing with that. And that and anybody could could join the online experience. So while I think that we've kind of stepped back now into how do we get people back into the seats um, and what people are familiar with and, and, and know that they can sell the tickets on, there is suddenly now this curiosity and this potential for expanding it beyond the walls of a of a venue.
0: Let's talk about process as a creative technologist and author. How do you meet the challenge of bringing the different disciplines all together? They speak different languages, technology, the theatrical experience. How do you merge all of that together into the future opportunities? What does it take? What's your process like
1: well you've you've absolutely identified one of the biggest challenges of moving forward um, and that if, if people speak different languages, if somebody's speaking in C-sharp and somebody else is speaking in, you know, in Wagnerian operas and somebody else is speaking in, in Instagram terms, having them all come together for the benefit of a cohesive experience from the audience perspective or from the guest perspective, which kind of hails back to Imagineering days, really thinking of um, our audiences as guests and that we need to take care of them they need time. They need time to not necessarily um, learn how to speak fluently but what I encourage all my interdisciplinary teams to is be, is to be conversant. Understand the basic structure of Unreal or how Unity processes information. Understand the basic structure of, of um, a protagonist and an antagonist. Understand basics on, on design and interactivity. And the in knowing a little bit about each of those, you don't have to be an expert in each one. But respecting the disciplines that everybody has and um, being curious, enough to learn enough to incorporate and give and take where you need to um, in the development process uh, is incredibly important and that development process itself helps brings the disciplines together so if we evolve the development process from a classical auteur medium like a film where somebody writes the script and the script gets produced and then gets put in front of an audience and there's no iterative process, which is what we see in software design or game design. There's a lot of iteration. You put something out, you beta test it, you see where people are not able to follow um, the story or not able to follow the gameplay and you change it, you adapt to the feedback. So having a process that allows for iteration gives the different disciplines an opportunity to um, talk and discuss solutions.
0: So bringing the gaming sensibility to interactive, immersive, creative modeling can be helpful here if you're looking to incorporate iterative elements into into the storytelling process, right?
1: Absolutely, and the gaming industry has taken huge strides in the last couple of years um, in incorporating narrative and character design, and you know, your your the way that you interact with the game having a meaningful impact on how the character develops, rather than just a score point or a leaderboard. Um, And they they've really really pushed into that space. I mean, I think there are a lot of people that look at you know the big M word metaverse and go you know, who's going to be leading the metaverse. And a lot of the interactivity and the basis of, of what's being developed is in the game engines of Unity, of Unreal, of the boutique um, game engines that allow for the core functionality of an experience to be um, tapped into. And we're just layering on the creative of how that engine is implemented. So um, gaming is absolutely core to to where this is all headed.
2: And it makes sense for a game, right? I mean, just the games that we we see now. Um, even if it's based on on a narrative IP, you know, um, Planet of the Apes or War of the Planet of the Apes comes comes to mind, right? You can be human or ape and and do battle. And certainly, the experience that you mentioned before, like the, the Van Gogh experience. Okay, if you want to walk into a Van Gogh or a visit with the characters in a Ren War painting, I can see how that works. But but do you do you think? that what you're envisioning would work for let's say a you know a feature film and and if so what happens to sort of the traditional western three act structure does can that still exist
1: well, you know, I think in a in traditional framed medium, we saw attempts at more the choose your own narrative type rather than the step into a character and play a character type, right? So you see, you have your bandersnatch, you have your okay, go A, go B um, uh, options as far as, as how the. Uh, audiences interacting, which is done for a reason, because it's insanely complicated to create all the different per- per- eventualities, right? That an audience might choose. So that, and that's an example of of classical creators being very constrained to the tools that they have, and their tools are the page. You know, they write on the page, they write something linear, and then they go, okay, and then I turn the page, and so there's, there's you know, outcome A, and I turn the page again, and there's outcome B. Now, when we're working in game engines, when we're working with all these incredible new AI technologies that are coming down the line, we are suddenly not beholden to a page. We are working in three dimensional space. We are working with, uh, you know, space time continuums that, that, Happen simultaneously and can exist in multiple places at the same time. So, you know, we're really stepping out of what was the classical medium, and that requires an evolution in in conceptualizing even the concept of of narrative. Just to get really heady for you guys,
2: <laughs> outside of the gaming, and I'm not a big gamer. I've litigated some gaming cases and represented gaming companies, but still my knowledge of gaming is extremely rudimentary and seems to be person A or team A versus team B and whatever those teams are, and they do some sort of a battle and there's some sort of objective. And certainly there's a story in that, right? I mean, every step of the way is some element of a story that you could tell, but it's not a you know traditional beginning, middle and And with some sort of structure resolution. Is that even possible though? I guess that's what I don't, I'm not getting that. Is it possible to make an immersive experience that has it? It it seems like it would be. Maybe we're not there yet, but that's what I'm asking you.
1: Yes. That's a lot (laughs) of what I'm playing around in different R&D labs um, is how do you take the structure of um, you know the traditional freytag's pyramid of uh, you know an introduction and a and a climax and a denouement and allow that to occur at any place in time at any uh, regardless of of location where where an audience member is based um, and you know there's a there's a lot of R&D going on along those lines but I can tell you that there's there's playing on the tech side which is necessary right like we need to evolve the tools to support it but historically you look at how tech evolves and it's inspired by the artists right like even the word metaverse which comes from you know comes from a book where it was conceptualized and somebody dreamed it up and and the technologists really need to have the storytellers to have the animators to have the character designers um in the room with them while they're developing um, in order to inspire these potential ways of thinking. So instead of it just being like, all right, we're going to... We're gonna create a game that's open world and you create your own story in it, or we create, you know, a first-person shooter and you've got to go around with your team and, and collect all the, you know, collect all the flags or whatever it is. We're looking at it and stepping back and saying, okay, now we can truly create an emotionally engaging, meaningful story within an interactive space. But that's gonna take, it's gonna take having the right people in the room and being open to the solutions not being what we expect them to be for sure. And evolving our tools.
0: Speaking of books, in 2019, you published The End of Storytelling, The Future of Narrative in the Storyplex. Uh, Two questions. One, what exactly is the Storyplex? And what motivated you to write this book and to describe this new paradigm for storytelling?
1: I'll start with the second question first. Um, I've, I've spent decades working with, um, like you mentioned in the intro, everybody from um, Google to nonprofits to large media corporations. And I found myself in each room saying the same things over and over and over again because people would come with a script and go, we want this script, but we want to do it in VR. We have this script, but we want to do it as an experience. And you have to... Approach it as a creative from the audience perspective, right? Because they're the they're centralized in their experience, right? Um, and more and more, you're seeing this in content where the people that are engaging in content are the central part of their own narrative. Whether they're snapping selfies at 29 rooms um, or you know jotting down um, chat messages during a, a TikTok concert. Uh, you know, that the weekend's doing or whatever it is. They're the center of of how they're engaging. So this book is really bringing together a lot of what I said in those conference rooms to various clients. and um, hopefully it's a gateway for people to start thinking immersively and understanding that there is a significant difference between um, classical framed mediums and these new immersive interactive mediums. The storyplex, is a very specific way for me to hopefully unlock that psychological approach. The um, Storyplex is a dynamic network of how a story comes together in interactive and immersive environments that uses um, the audience as one core component, the narrative as a second core component, and the technology that you're using as a third core component. And critically, these three components don't just all come together and sit, right? It is a dynamic network. So with audience feedback, we change the narrative. With the narrative, we leverage different tools, whether it's, you know, projection mapping or an actor saying a line or any kind of feedback to the audience. So the idea is to think outside of a predefined narrative and start to embrace how these different elements interact together to create meaningful and wonderful experiences.
2: So one thing that comes to mind based on what you're saying, um, as I'm still trying to basically understand it, is the game that Pokemon put out some years ago, where you could go out and about and, you know, hold up your phone, you would see the Pokemon character and I don't know. I never played it, but you know, it it was it was immersive. We got to get you
1: playing it, Jonathan. We got to get you playing it. Yeah, Niantic's Pokemon Go. Yes, right, right, right. Pokemon
2: Go. Right. So, so it seems like that's sort of immersive as well. And as I'm trying to piece together what you're saying, you know, with just my rudimentary understanding of everything in the world, um, I mean, one thing that comes to mind is well, that's totally immersive, right? Because There I have my character pop up. I'm seeing it in my immersive reality, which happens to be my real reality, just augmented with this. Does that in any way get to the immersive experience that you are working on or is it completely tangential?
1: Pokemon Go is a phenomenon for for several reasons. And if we go back to immersive as a psychological state, certainly when I was running around Brooklyn with my 12-year-old son at the time, you know, chasing after these invisible (laughs) characters and and going into battle with other invisible characters and you're looking for the people that are standing there because they have to be in proximity and you're like, who else has a Pokemon? Who am I battling? Like, it's yes, it's very psychologically engaging. Um, It's very heavily game-based as opposed to narrative base. So a lot of what we are doing over at Odeon Theatrical, which is my joint venture with the Schubert organization and a technology company called Hexagram, is looking at augmented reality integration into story. Because again, with Pokemon Go, yes, you're immersed, but what's the narrative, right? What's the story? You're bringing your own story to it. Mm -hmm. Right. Whereas when you're working with more classical narratives we're seeing AR as a very specific use case to do the theatrical elements that cannot be done in live theater so for example we worked with Disney theatrical group on Aladdin to do a prototype where um, you know you have a live action Aladdin on stage who rubs a, a lamp and a genie flies up and out of the air and into the sky and then comes directly to you and says oh you know oh it feels good to be out of here. And then, you know, proceeds to conjure fireworks and, and those, those um, columns of food and, and and feast of tables, all of things which would be incredibly expensive if you were to try and do it in an actual live theatrical setting. But because it is such a fantastical story and a fantastical character, it makes sense for AR to supplement the live action components in a way that really bring that story to life in a way that might... Might not be possible on a regular stage. So maybe that concrete example um, kind of helps clarify the difference between like traditional AR, which tends to be more gaming and get and you know it, right now is kind of feels a little gimmicky to a lot of people and meaningful engagement in AR content
2: yeah. and and the the Aladdin example is interesting to me because you could tell a complete narrative because it it's no longer branching. Right. If I'm the audience member and I'm just and I'm watching what the genie is doing and and things like that, I don't need to or don't have the opportunity to influence what's going on. I can look around in any given scene, but I'm not changing the story and I can be brought along on uh, a traditional narrative storytelling in that example, can't I?
1: right and at that stage your agency or your ability to interact is limited to how you choose to look through the, the device right so exactly like mm-hmm. you're saying you know you're not um, you're not choosing something for the genie to put out which shifts you over into another cognitive set load where you're having to make decisions as opposed to just appreciating and enjoying this phenomenal activity that's happening and the spectacle that's before you but certainly when people were watching it you know that you know we have kids that were eight years old we beta tested everybody from eight up to you know 68 and um they, they're like looking at the live action and looking at like what wait what' like what's in my what's in my device and just blown away by by this new layer of magic that had been added into the program into the production. Sounds cool.
0: Stephanie, the VRAR Association called you truly a renaissance woman of the immersive era. When did you first realize the potential that immersive technology could have on storytelling?
1: That goes all the way back to the mid-90s. Um, and working in virtual reality in the mid-90s and seeing suddenly, I mean, really, it came from failing. If I'm honest about it, it it came from failing. Um, I I went into Carnegie Mellon as a theater major and did not know what email was, so just to date myself there. And I, and I I had to code, and I kept failing the coding classes, and I couldn't understand it. And so until I wrapped my brain around coding as a way of being able to have simultaneous stories happening at the same time that people could interact with, like I couldn't understand what the computer was for. So, but once I got that, and that was just from coding basic HTML pages, then I was hooked. And then it was like, well, what else can we do with this? And oh, there are these huge headsets that didn't look too much different from the Oculus DK2, if we're honest about it. <laughs> um, and I started exploring it then. But the problem was, once the VR industry really imploded in the late 90s, um, there was nowhere for me to go and keep exploring that wasn't in academia. Um, which so I would go. I worked at Intel, doing technology that was ahead of the curve and. would just get sucked back into Intel capital. Uh, And then I'd go back and work at, at a theater in San Francisco and then work at Disney Imagineering and kind of, so I was bouncing back and forth between those two things. And I think following this curiosity and having this early kind of split in my life allowed me to say, well, well, how does that work in theme parks well how does that work in film and if I'm going to do a film what about doing it in stereoscopic 3d and if I'm going to do a play why don't we layer on some interactive projection mapping and if I'm going to write a story then how do I how do I incorporate game engines into narratives and so so the the renaissance woman is, is such a kind and wonderful and Um, beautiful, I think, way to describe how I've been able to pull together um, experiential and theme parks and classical narratives and all of these pieces to say, you know what? We're not all operating in different worlds. Really, if we come together, there's some incredible magic that can happen.
2: I like the franchise capability of of what you're doing, because if you can, you can, you can literally take something from a game and then make it an experience either at one's home or in the theme parks. Can you talk about like where you see, given your, your history as a, an Imagineer, one of the coolest jobs on the planet. um, Can you talk about where you see maybe theme parks going with the technology you're working with?
1: Absolutely. It is a cool job with some of the coolest people. Um, and I'm still very dear friends with them. I I love the, the tenacity and the, and the experimentation and the curiosity of, of Imagineers. And I think if we look at, you know, what Disney's opened up most recently, um, the, uh, galactic star cruiser, right. Um, where you can go in and you're in for two days, and it's a hotel. You're staying there. You're eating. You've got a plot line, and how you interact with the stories and the characters affects um, where you end up. And as the narrative kind of climaxes, like that right there is a beautiful example of bringing together you know theater and interactivity and and technology um, and how and how they're seeing and tracking where you are going in the space and and which character you're interacting with and I think that that if if people want to explore that's a great place to see what's really happening on the forefront but even so you've got you know 2Bit Circus announced that they're taking over um, some hotels in the northeast and they're going to bring their carnival gaming style fun and play to a hotel experience and I think that this kind of starts looking at like if you want to be immersed in something to find the time and the energy to go and stay in some place like people are looking for that all comprehensive all like the environment is is immersive the characters are immersive your place in that space is immersive so they're they're just really trying to level everything up across the board
2: you see how that could take the escape room to just a whole new level
1: <laughs> right I mean escape rooms too escape rooms are great and there's all different kinds of escape rooms there's not just the kinds that are you know you saw you've got to get out of the room there's uh, there are you know ones where you go on quests there are ones where you're you're finding things and you're handing them off to other teams like it's more collaborative it's the there are so many different things happening, and you know, No proscenium is a wonderful, wonderful resource for anybody who's looking to um, find out what's going on in the interactive, immersive space. Um, they try and be very much a time capsule of all the things that are happening because sometimes these things pop up and they go away, and it's like, well, w- you know, they're gone in two weeks, and the tickets were all sold out. Um, so, uh, if there's a place to explore, I'd recommend people check that out. It's called No Proscenium, perfect name.
0: We're still trying to grasp the profound impact of COVID. In your TED Talk, you discussed Broadway's hiatus during COVID and the need to think beyond the theater. So how did COVID, where the theaters were empty, um, how did that change your approach to theater? And what are you doing for the future? How, does that, how are you executing going forward?
1: It didn't change a lot for me, honestly, because I had already been working in the virtual space. But it changed a lot for so many of my colleagues that were now, had never even considered working virtually. And so what it did was really open up the talent pool and diversify the, the disciplines that we're starting to play around in um, creating stories in a virtual or interactive component. While while the while all the venues were shut down, that's when we started Fifth Wall Forum, which was bringing together um, technologists, engineers, animators, narrators, um, actors, and having having them learn how to collaborate together and try different things together. And those. Um, projects that started there have gone on to go to Venice, um, Tribeca, Sundance, um, and they continue to kind of flourish right now in the live performance XR space. And the World Experience Organization also started at the same time. And one another one of my co-founders, um, uh, James Wallman really heads it up, but you know, the co-founders include Joe Pine, who coined the term the experience economy. And it, suddenly you're starting to see people come together that were traditionally incredibly busy people that you could never get a hold of. And suddenly we're having campfires where we're sharing what we've learned working with brands and how that can affect um, theater shows and how that changes people working on more gaming applications. And suddenly this cross collaboration is starting to inform and um, really push the momentum forward on what's possible with new types of content. So I think I think what the pandemic allowed was the that opportunity for people to go what if and a reason to engage.
0: Can you describe what exactly the fifth wall is?
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah, so um you know the the fourth wall, right? We're all familiar with the fourth wall. The wall between the actor and and the audience, but the way that we thought of the fifth wall was taking that fourth wall and making it interactive and and things going back and forth between them. So it's it's more of a of a philosophical approach than anything than than any concrete example.
2: It's like a handball wall. It sounds like he bounced stuff off of them, comes back to you, and if I'm because uh, it's interactive, you're saying right? The fifth wall isn't it, isn't that the
1: right it, the point or well, more that I guess the ball—if you—if you, if you hand, to use your handball example—you're hitting a handball against a wall. Like that wall's not moving. Um, whereas you know the audience might change the narrative or might send things, uh, evolve things, and how it and how it interacts. So there's some really great examples um, that have come out. Of live performance and XR, which was what Fifth Wall was really focused on, was live performance and uh, and extended reality technology. So AR, VR, MR.
0: I have a, the ultimate periscope question: <laughs> Is can you explain how today's technology can be a light for tomorrow's theater and entertainment? You know, what can we look forward to? What's around the corner?
1: So much is around the corner, Stephen. <laughs> um, Today's technology is our toolbox. And if you think about the history of our tools and our tool sets and how they have evolved mediums, you think about the theater going from gas lights to electric lights. You think about a film going from being something that you would have to cut and splice together to being something that's built largely in software. I mean, I think that, you know, you look at like the ink and paint um, and it's, the division of disney is pretty much is gone right because there's no uh, you know live animation so as our tool sets evolve what we are able to create with our content will evolve i i will give one fair warning on that that it is not the tools alone that will change our audiences have to evolve with us. meaning we can dream up the craziest thing, but if I need to, when I put you into a VR headset, explain to me that you need to push the left button to go up and the right button to go down and you have and you have non-intuitive interfaces in an audience that doesn't know that they can turn their head to look around them. The content itself is still waiting for the audience and for our guests to catch up with the creative. so it's it's kind of it needs both, which is why the Storyplex is so important, right? Like it's not just the tool set. It's not just the narrative. It is also our humanity and how we interact and choose to interact and engage with the content as it becomes more interactive.
0: Wow, as we are at the crossroads of the new media economy and it's really exciting to hear you discuss opportunities for great storytelling and experiences incorporating immersive media, immersive technology. Given me lots to imagine about.
1: Come join us in the sandbox, please. Um, I think honestly, this is going to evolve not just content, not just tools, but the how the businesses are structured. What does it mean to have something that's a live performance um, but might have recorded elements, or you know, is live motion capture a digital recording or is it a live performance I think there's going to be evolutions um, on all the touch all aspects of business as well as narrative.
0: Absolutely it's some great issue spotting and a lot of fun for lawyers like us to uh, to address and untangle.
1: Thank you for helping us. Yeah.
2: I mean look, it's, you know, some of this is so, you know, ethereal as it were that it's, you know, it is a little tough for me to grasp, but I think I have a much better understanding of it now than when we first started talking and I mean, one thing that kept coming to mind with me is Stephanie should do a partnership with you know Fox and, and the the uh, the Simpsons. Um, um, I can't remember the name of the production company because, like, I'd be interested in seeing like how that works in a immersive you know, virtual way. And I don't mean just like a a game because there are certainly, you know, games based on The Simpsons, but somehow that's what came to mind for me. So, you know, anyone who would even think that is already naturally confused, obviously.
1: I love it. Let's make it happen, Jonathan.
2: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually have a, I have a business legal question for you. I don't know if you'll be able to answer this, but I'm wondering if you see or have encountered any legal issues in doing this. I mean, there, depending on what you're working on, there's certain copyright things that would come to mind. But I'm just curious if you've encountered any sort of you know legal roadblocks that you've had to surmount.
1: Well, I think that for me, the legal element is usually wrapped up in the... The permissions in the IP so for example when we're talking about Aladdin um, it, who, who can say yes was a huge question so when we're talking about evolving certain IP or certain content into the interactive immersive space just getting to who can say yes like is this a live thing is this the digital team is this the where does this fall it's kind of a no man's land and honestly I circumvent it um by looking and saying, well, who wants to play in the sandbox that doesn't have to that I don't have to get tangled up in legal um, issues to in order to engage with, and a lot of times the people that are able to play in that realm are is academia um, because they're not doing it for profit. They aren't trying to hit a bottom line. They aren't trying to hit returns. So there's much more freedom in what they can explore. The, mm-hmm. the flip side of that is that academics are really looking for that cutting edge, which oftentimes is not the commercial edge. It's not commercially ready for prime time for audience for ninety nine percent uptime. You know, and audiences that are paid hundreds. Of dollars to be in an experience, right? So, like, those two things become very separate. But, big outstanding legal questions seem to come down to who can say yes to using IP in this way? And then how does it work on the back end when it's not quite a film it's not quite a live show you know where how how is profit structure you know if you start looking into business structures how is profit sharing happening when you've got certain people performing every night live like on stage live and some people are performing digitally and some people are performing remotely and some people are you know there's there's a lot of of questions that come back to the current legal mechanisms are are set in place to support existing industries and as this Comes out as a new industry, I think there's tremendous opportunity to step back and reevaluate and say, are we supporting our creators? Are we transparent in where the profits are coming in and where they're going? So um, I think that's a hopefully that's not too long winded, but
2: no, no, and getting, and who can say yes to me? What, what I hear as a copyright lawyer is, you know, is it who controls the rights to this, right? You, you, you talked about that. And, you know, is it in the public domain? Like Aladdin is totally in the public domain. Even if you look at the immersive Van Gogh experience, all those images completely in the public domain, um, so long as somebody didn't take a photograph of them and, you know, then they own the right to that photograph. So, that maybe maybe then where this develops on the commercial side is just you know through exploitation of works that are free for you know inventors and imagineers of all kind to um, create new derivative works.
1: Yes, absolutely, and I think with something when you're working specifically with a genie that looks like the genie in Aladdin, like that, I'm not going to do anything without Disney's blessing. <laughs> right, <laughs> you know? right. the, dis- the,
2: the Disney, the Disney genie is a is a genie of its own, right? Right. right. Yes, mo- one of the most <laughs> litigious companies in the world. I would not go messing around with their IP. Although, although there is, in case in case you don't know of it, uh, there's a great fair use video that is made entirely of clips from classic disney movies cartoons and it's it explains fair use really well and for a while i was teaching a law school class on ip and every every semester i would show this film because it's terrific and it's funny and it explains it really really well
1: i'm gonna have to go hunt that down i have a question for you jonathan are you still cartooning
2: I am. And in fact, everything I do virtually has a has a doodle on it, including my notes from today. I'm looking there, but I'm not I'm not publishing like I used to. But thanks for asking.
1: Do you happen to know my my good friend, dear friend, Jason Chatfield? I don't. He is the current president of the American Cartoonist Society.
2: Really, yes, oh, and
1: he is cool. a lovely, like lovely, lovely human. If you were in New York, he has a show coming up that is cartooning while during a comedy set, and so they draw cartoons uh, like yeah. it's it's brilliant. <laughs> yeah. And I want to find a way to do it in XR. Um, yeah. but, um, but he's he's a delight, and I love to hear that you're still that you're still putting ink on on pages.
2: Yeah, it's uh, I. You know, I was a habitual doodler and then um, I went to film school and through that process learned how to write a joke and my writing partner and I, at, at one point we were writing some spec tv and we were supposed to be staffed on the roseanne show and i remember it was while working on one of those scripts that i was just doodling i realized oh i can take just a joke just like we're writing on the page and apply it to you know these silly looking drawings and lo and behold it's a cartoon and and i don't need to go through my agent or to get you know a studio executive to say yes this is perfect but just make this change.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Nailed it. Yeah,
2: yeah. Wonderful.
1: Well, thank you again for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah,
0: thanks for joining us. I think a lot of folks are going to really appreciate this episode. So thank you again, Stephanie.
1: Lovely. I appreciate the opportunity to talk through it because you and I met when you met me as one of my pieces, right? Like as As a classical storyteller. And most people who met me through film or through theater had no idea that the tech side even existed. And I would never even bring it up, and now suddenly we're able to talk about this with these two things coexisting and co-creating together. And I, I love that it's come this far.
0: Well, you're a pioneer, and I'm really excited to see what's around the corner, what lies ahead. We're following. Please lead.
1: I will absolutely. I'm yeah. glad to have you guys along. For yeah, the like ride. we love
0: how you challenge us on a on a weekly basis. So, <laughs> please uh, keep keep it up. All right. hey,
2: thanks, Stephanie.
0: Bye, Stephanie. You too. Thanks, Thank you. Stephanie. Bye. The Periscope Podcast is presented by Lewis Brisboy, a nationally recognized multifaceted full-service law firm focused on today's challenges and tomorrow's opportunities. Your co-hosts are Stephen Beer and Jonathan Pink. Our research associates, Christina Stagliano and Catherine Frank. Our publicity producer is Ayush Kumar. Our technical producer is Noah Vanderf. <laughs>